How many of you, when you were children, dreamed of being mediocre? <laughs> you didn't really want to succeed very much. You didn't want to be an abject failure, but you're kind of, you're kind of hoping to be like the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, just, <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan, so, you know, that's, that's a plea for help and prayer, not, uh, <laughs> not trashing anybody's team. You're just kind of in the picture and you keep it interesting, but you never win the big one, never really succeeding, kind of the bologna and craft cheese sandwich of life. <laughs> Sustaining, but no one's going to write grandma an email and talk about you. Nobody wants that, right? Everybody wants to succeed, whatever success means. Nobody wants to lose, and nobody wants to be mediocre. And that's what's been interesting about the series of sermons that we're concluding today. I've been talking to you about a huge biblical truth that every single one of us is ordinary. Ordinary, but not mediocre. Our culture would have you believe that ordinary and mediocre are the same thing, and they're not. The Bible begins its opening words announce that God made the heavens and the earth. That means that between God and everything and everyone else, there is a massive divide because He alone is the Creator. The rest of us are created. And there we're wonderfully made. The Bible goes on to announce in the chapters that follow that we're made in His image. I had a t-shirt when I was a kid that my grandma gave me, and looking back, some of those t-shirts were pretty cringy, but this one was actually nice. Had a very childlike message. I think she saw my youthful, childish insecurities and gave me a t-shirt that said, God doesn't make junk. And I could just look down at my pudgy little chest and remind myself, God made me. And that might not mean that I'm awesome, but it at least means that I'm not junk. We're made in God's image. And that's a huge biblical idea, which I won't take time to explain today, but it means at least this, that you're not God because He made you, but you're made in His image, and therefore you have inherent dignity and value and worth. And part of being made in His image is that you can know God and you can love Him. Most of His creation can neither lo love Him nor know Him. The mountains were made by God, but only poetically could they praise Him. Human beings praise Him, love Him, trust Him. We are welcomed into, as you're going to see in the words of Jesus in a few minutes, we're welcomed into a relationship God that, with God that means that God is not only our Creator, but God is our Father. So that's the beautiful part of being made in God's image. But what makes us ordinary is precisely the same thing, that we are made. We did not make ourselves. We're not our own idea. We are not, as God is, self-existent and self-sustaining. Because of the effect of sin in the world, we've been life on this earth has been ruined, and we're all marching one day at a time toward the end of our life, at least here on this earth. We're frail and limited. And you say every day to at least a few people, like me probably, something that acknowledges that you're not God. You say to people, I can't. Anybody say, I can't this week? I've said it a lot. I also said things like, I don't know. And I'm not sure. God never says any of those things. 
He can. He does know. He is sure. But there's, again, this vast divide between who God is and who we are as His creation, and that makes us glorious and meaningful and purposeful, but also ordinary. And our culture wants to erase the distinction. Our culture is pressing ordinary people to a life that matters forever, and it's asking the right question, but it's giving the right answer. It's, it's asking the right question, rather, but it's giving the wrong answer. The purpose of this sermon is to try to sum up the things that we've learned in the last three and for me to answer this question, what can ordinary people do to have extraordinary significance? That's the question. If we are ordinary people who are not gods unto ourselves, who are created beings made in His image to know Him and to love Him, if our lives can matter beyond our death, what does that actually look like? Well, we begin with this humbling and humble truth that we are not God. My pastor, my predecessor here and the senior pastor at this church used to say that one big difference between God and you is that God never gets confused and think that He is you. <laughs> now, that's kind of a complicated sentence, but if you'll work your way through it, you'll get to the core of it. God knows He's the Creator. Some of us only delude ourselves that we are. We put ourselves as tiny little gods at the center of our own little universe, and it never works. So the culture's answer is simple. All of these ordinary, frail, mortal people who don't know and aren't sure have to be awesome all the time. And you have to be winning, and you have to be an outlier, and you have to achieve, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And that's, that's half of what's driving social media. People who, in some cases, actually are exceptional, and through the magic of editing and selectivity, appear even more exceptional than they are, tell everybody else, follow this way, do these kinds of things, or else you're losing. And nobody can live with that pressure. And as the father of young men and people who... Uh, person who cares about the next generation, I wonder if that's not at the heart of the epidemic of anxiety that we're all experiencing, that you have to know everything and be everything and be awesome all the time or you're wasting your life. The culture has the right question. The Bible says that there is eternity in our hearts. In other words, we know that we're meant to live forever. We know that there must be more to this life but it's giving wrong answers that lead only to despair, that lead only to anxiety. So this sermon is simply intended to give you my best answer drawn across Scripture of what you can actually do as an ordinary person made in the image of God and loved by Jesus enough for Him to die on the cross and raise from the, rise from the dead so that He could forgive your sins and give you eternal life, what you can do so that your life will begin counting now and go on counting forever. It's not an ordinary sermon. Usually what I do is pick a passage of Scripture and move right through it. For the last few weeks, I've been asking myself this question. If I had about 30 or 40 minutes, I could tell someone just a handful of things that they needed to pay attention to to make sure that their one precious life counted and became extraordinary, not in the culture's sight, but God's sight, what would I tell them? Here's my answer. Look with me, please. If you have your handout, you can look to Jeremiah chapter 9. 
The first answer is this. Number one, you are to give your life to knowing God. You're all giving your life to something. You don't have a choice. If God gives you another day of life, you wake up, you look around, you realize you're still here. A day unfolds before you, a new chapter of the story can be written. You're going to live for something. You have to decide what it is. And the thing is, if you pay careful attention to Jesus, you're going to find that His values are completely upside down from the world. Jesus says things like this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Nowhere in the culture will you hear that. Jesus said, if you try to preserve your life, you'll lose it. But if you give it away for His sake, you'll keep it forever. Here's something very familiar that Jesus says that people rarely put into practice. Jesus said that the last will be first. Did you notice how relatively unenthusiastic that uh, <laughs> pastor and, and congregation response was? Jesus not only questions our assumptions, He turns them upside down. You're all giving your life, I'm giving my life to something, and Jeremiah would tell you 600 years before Jesus made the terms of God and the terms of the kingdom abundantly clear that the first and best thing you should give your life to is knowing the God who made you, the God who is there, the God who actually exists, who is not an idea, not a set of values, He's not an energy in the universe, He is a person. And God makes human beings in His image precisely because He's a person. I don't mean that He's like you, I mean that He has mind, will, emotions, plans, purposes, that He delights in things, but He hates others. He's intelligent. He knows. He loves. He cares. He plans. He works, He builds up, and He tears down. Knowing who that God actually is, person to person, is the first and the best thing that He would have you give your life to. And though I'm going to give you three answers, if you only hear one, it should be this one. Because giving your life to knowing the God who is actually there is what matters most. He's not a math problem, He's a person. And for the next three weeks in our next series, which I'm calling Knowing God, I'm going to give you very specific and practical biblical advice on how to grow in your personal knowledge and love for God. But you can know Him, and Jeremiah, voicing God Himself, says so. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. I'm going to read aloud, but every once in a while, I'm going to ask you to join me, so stay on your toes out there, okay? <laughs> Thus says the Lord, a dramatic way of the prophet writing saying what follows is not mere narrative, this is actually the voice and the Word of God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and what's it say there? and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Look how God subverts and upends what the culture tells us to love. 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Does our culture in 2023 in coastal Orange County esteem wisdom and strength and money? Absolutely. And these are things worth bragging about, especially the last one. Our culture has gotten corroded to the point that if you have money, it doesn't even matter if you're a fool. Wisdom can be safely discarded as long as you somehow end up with a lot of money anyway. This passage that I just read to you is some 2,600 years old. Jeremiah wrote roughly 620 B.C. Human nature, human goals have not changed one iota. Human beings have always esteemed wisdom. They've always esteemed might. They've always esteemed money. And God says, don't even mention it. It's not worth bragging about. If you have any of those things, don't brag about it. And by the way, none of those things are bad. And here's how I know. God has all of them perfectly. God is wise, God is mighty, and God has all the wealth in the world. He doesn't have contempt for them. He owns them all. He just says they're trivial in comparison to something else. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and, here's the key word, and knows what? Me. Me. The thing you should give your life to the most. And beginning next Sunday, we'll talk practically on a daily basis. What does that even look like? Is knowing God. What kind of God is this? Why is He worth knowing? I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In fact, God says, in these things I, last word, delight. There's not anyone in the world who doesn't care about steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. If you read the headlines, if you look within our borders and around the world, what everybody is clamoring for is real faithful love, actual justice, actual righteousness. We see the subversion and the denial of it every day. The God that you can actually know delights in steadfast love. He delights in justice. He delights in righteousness. And in fact, it says, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who, very important word, practices. I don't just know these things, I do them. This is my heart and this is my habit. So the very best thing you could do with your life is know that God. We're a curious bunch, we humans, all too easily entertained. I know this because I spent about 30 seconds watching an ant yesterday. (laughs) And I felt kind of dumb about it, but then I remembered that Proverbs actually says to consider the ant and learn from him. So I, I, I took my lesson on hard work watching an ant. We're all too easily entertained. We're all too easily starstruck. I have a friend who years ago met a big-time celebrity in Los Angeles. It's kind of easy to do that. If you go to the right places, hang out outside the right restaurants, you'll eventually see somebody that's on the cover of something. And she came, like, face-to-face with him, and she was very excited about it as she reported it to me. He was right there. And in her excitement, she said, 
do you know who you are? And he looked at her like, oh, honey, you know what, what happened to you? Uh, he seemed, she said, kind of used to that kind of stupid question. We're all too easily impressed with people that are actually only marginally different from the kind of people we are. Now, obviously, much more successful, according to her, way more good-looking, very, very wealthy. Won't be here long. Taste change. People change. You want to know how foolish it is to set your sights on knowing all about or knowing personally anyone that is merely someone that the culture esteems, someone that's merely famous? Here's how I know that's a vain pursuit. If you're my age or older, ask a young person about somebody you thought was really, really cool when you were a kid. You'll discover something. Almost without exception, they've never heard of them. If they have heard of them, they'll have pity for you that you still care about something like that. The trends, the times, the values, the tastes, they change. You'll do so much better if instead you give your life to knowing the eternal God who literally from the design of creation, the way He made you, the Son He sent after you, has taken sacrificial efforts so that you could know Him. And in Him, you're going to find literally the best person ever. Literally by definition. The person who made everything that actually thrills your heart in a true and good way is found in Him. Listen to this again. Let Him who boasts, boast in this, that He understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, meaning I'm in charge of everything. Not just one more person. I'm the one in charge, and I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In fact, God says, in these things I delight. You get to know Him, you won't regret a moment. You won't regret a bit of effort it takes you to know God. Jesus explained it this way. John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they, what? Know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not only knowing a person, if you know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, you know eternal life. Now, finally, your frail temporary life on this earth is in touch with eternity. Now you can give your life to something and someone that actually matters and that will live forever. So, the piercing question is this, do you know Him? And before you answer too quickly, let me explain. I'm not asking you, do you believe in Him? You can believe in someone without knowing them very well. Would you agree? I believe that Michael Jordan exists. We've never met. We never will. I'm not asking you if you believe in Him. I'm not asking even if you're saved and have an actual relationship with Him. I'm asking you a personal question. How well do you actually know Him? Because He's knowable. He's deep, boundless, infinite. 
For that matter, so is every other person because we're made in God's image. You never get down to knowing someone perfectly, not even yourself. Have you noticed? Have you ever asked yourself why you did something? It's a silly question. You were there the whole time. What do you mean? (laughs) You don't even truly know yourself utterly. You don't know your loved ones, the people you most love. You don't know them perfectly, but you can know them And people that have been in good marriages for 40, 50, 60 years can tell you that even as their bodies start to betray them, the relationship can get sweeter and better and deeper because they love one another and they're good to one another and we're happier and more in love 30 years in than we were the day we were married. That's how loving relationships actually work. And when you're in touch with God, you're literally in love and loyal relationship with the best person in the universe. That's why God said it was the only thing worth boasting about and why Jesus said this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Practically speaking, and this is the next series, you will grow closer to God in exactly the measure that you learn to hear from Him, talk to Him, and then obey Him. Your relationship with God will grow the way it grows with any other person. You have to listen. You have to talk. And then, because He's God and not fallible, and because He's always true and good and He's always right, if from your listening and your speaking, which is Scripture and prayer, then you go out to obey Him, you're going to find your life on a path that actually matters forever. Here's the second thing. Based on your knowledge of God, you give then your life to seeking God's kingdom first. You give your life on the basis of the way you know God and who you know God to be. You give the life you have to seeking His kingdom first. Look with me in Matthew chapter 6. This won't appear on your screens, so let me invite you to open your Bibles if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. This is part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. And I just want you to pay attention to three things. Time, money, and mental energy. As Jesus teaches what really matters. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Watch this. Don't miss it. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Let's answer Jesus' question. Can you worry yourself into living one more hour? No, but you may worry yourself into living less. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Listen, anxious child of God, listen. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, which in Jesus' time and terminology means people who don't know God at all, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and what's it say? All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus would tell us, explicitly or implicitly in that long reading that there are three gauges of your true priorities, and they are these. Number one, the use of your time. Number two, the use of your money. And number three, very important, the use of your mental energy. The things you spend time thinking about, whether you want to, which is work and purpose, or you don't, which is anxiety. Those three things, how you end up using your time, how you end up or choose to use your money, and how you end up or purposely choose to use your mental energy, those tell you your three priorities regardless of what you put on the letter, regardless of what the bumper sticker, the slogan, the family mission statement, it doesn't matter. Time, money, and mental energy do not lie. That's why Jesus has this extended passage in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, inviting people to not spend their lives chasing and anxiously worrying about the things that their heavenly Father already knows that they need. Instead, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek the God who loves you. Seek the God who calls you who calls Himself your Father, and if you pursue Him and His kingdom, all of these things will be given to you, of course. Let me ask you another probing question just to assess. Because here's the thing. Matthew 6.33 is so well known to Christians, almost everybody can quote it by heart. And then if we're not very careful, we go out and live as if we'd never heard it at all. The amazing thing about social media and being a teaching pastor is sometimes you get to see people disobey what you just read them in the Bible five minutes earlier. <laughs> oh, we just talked about this. What are you doing? Didn't reach you today, huh? Didn't make a dent. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about God. I read the Bible and it still didn't make any difference. Here's the probing question. How'd you spend your time this week? Just look at the first one. They're all three worth considering, but time is just the first one, so we'll tackle that first. How did you spend your time this week? Do you even know? 
See, because here's the thing that's changed, especially because of social media and smartphones. The minutes and the hours can trickle by, and you may not even notice they're leaving. I have the immense privilege of being in vocational ministry. That means that I can dedicate the vast majority of my time all week to serving God and serving people. And in spite of that, one time I went home and my wife asked me a very normal question. What would you do today? And I thought to myself, I'm not even really sure. I'd have to sit down and kind of think through the day and see if I can reconstruct it. I'm not entirely sure where one whole precious day of my short life went. And I'm a pastor. I have boundaries and purpose given to my Christian life that very few Christians enjoy. So I can well imagine what that must be like for people who work ordinary secular jobs and like me are trying to raise and bless their kids and have to worry about rents and mortgages and cars and all the things that crowd into daily life. If you're not very conscious of the use of your time, not to mention the use of your money and not to mention the low-running hum of anxiety that seems to buzz in so many hearts and minds all the time, You'll give your whole life away and not even be sure exactly what you spent it on. So what do you do about that? Well, remember we've been saying that God is personal? And Jesus explained here repeatedly in Matthew chapter 6, He's your heavenly Father who knows you and knows what you need. Why don't you do something really daring? And since Jesus said to take up your cross and follow Him every day... What if you say to him in prayer at the end of this service, Jesus, just walk into my life right now and walk with me the rest of the week, walk ahead of me the rest of the week, and show me what my real priorities are. Because I would bet, based on pastoral observation and looking at my own heart, which is so prone to wander as the old hymn says, that a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of mental energy are going into things that don't even contribute well to our own lives to say nothing of the kingdom of God. Invite Jesus in. He'll lovingly, loyally walk through your life and point out to you where the leaks are, where the waste is, what things are trivial. He won't drain all the enjoyment of your life. No, not at all. The Bible says that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He'll focus it. He'll make sure that it's not wasted, that it's not thrown away. The great theologian J.I. Packer speaks of knowing God and the connection between knowing God and living for the right reasons. Packer speaks of it this way. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. You don't want to do that, friend. You want to know God, and then, based on how you know Him and what you know about Him, you want to seek His kingdom first. And thirdly, and much more briefly, the third thing that ties all of this together 
is that you are, according to Jesus, to give your life to being a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus, and you always want to remember to begin at home. Jesus has the nations in view, but He always begins at home. Let me show you, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's quite a statement. That statement is hateful to people who don't know Jesus and very stabilizing for people who do. He's in charge of everything. You don't have to get your hands around it. He already holds the whole world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in other words, based on my limitless authority, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The only imperative, for those of you who are grammar people, the only imperative, the only actual commandment in the Greek New Testament in that portion is one, go. It's not go. That's how they had to translate it in English. The only imperative is this, make disciples. In Greek, it sounds more like this, going, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Your whole job as a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples for Jesus. And we relegate that to the missionaries, and it's not. It's every Christian in our sphere of influence beginning in what matters to God so very much, your home. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice that it is the authority of God that's tying this all together. It's not just a good cultural idea, it's God's idea. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land for young Christians, for child Christians, for Christians at home. Your childlike responsibility to the Lord is to obey and honor your parents. He talks to the kids first, then he talks to mom and dad, especially the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, the great temptation of fatherhood, to exasperate them, to annoy them, to provoke them, to make their lives uncertain and fearful and therefore angry because they're just not quite sure what mood we're going to be in. Paul says don't do that. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of who again? Lord, it's the Lord that ties all this together. Discipleship must reach the nations, but it always begins at home. So that means if you're young enough to be still at home and you have the blessing of having Christian parents who are trying to follow Jesus and teach you to do the same, take your responsibility before God and honor and obey them. If you're a parent, you still have children at home, or like me, you now have grown young adults who are making their own decisions. Use your influence, use your time, use your money, use the resources that God has placed into your hands to do the very best you can through instruction, prohibition, or mere example to make disciples of those children. Let me show you where we've been. 
You've been invited into the great adventure of knowing the best person in the universe. Your heavenly Father, His precious Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who gave you life and opened your eyes to both of them. You can know Him. You can invite Him into your life. He can walk through your well-ordered or chaotic life, and He can put things right. He can show you where the time, the money, and the mental energy are going so that you don't waste your life, so that instead you seek His kingdom, not your little empire. And then you take that blessing, that knowledge, that love, and beginning with your own home, you set your heart on being a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus. This is the way that ordinary lives can have extraordinary significance. That only happens when they're given to God. And my plea in the name of Jesus to you is don't settle for less. Let's pray together, please. A moment ago, I told you that Jesus could, by your invitation, walk into your ordinary life and show you where the chaos is show you how the priorities need to change. I'm going to invite you to talk to him about that right now. And also, because this is very brief, and he'll probably have quite a lot to tell you if you ask him. I'm going to invite you to make another appointment with him very soon so that it's just the two of you. And he can show you how not to waste your life, how to make it count instead. I'm going to be quiet so that you can talk to him. And because he's really there, he really can draw near and answer. And if you're not sure you know Jesus at all, my invitation to you is to turn away from your sins and believe the good news. We've been mentioning it all service. Jesus died for sinners rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. If you'll turn to him, he'll save you. Lord, I pray that you would do the good work of summoning people to yourself. That you would walk through our individual lives. Show us where we've gone wrong. Show us what we're missing. Showing, show us what's out of place. And that this time of prayer would yield, Lord, other, better quieter, more personal times so that we could sit with you and love you and confess things to you and struggle with you, Lord, if that's where we are, so that we would again know your steadfast love, your justice, your righteousness, that you practice these things and delight in them. If there's someone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that right now they would turn to you and ask you for your salvation and your forgiveness. I pray that you would bless them And that this week, Lord, before we meet again, we would very consciously live for what matters. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says, amen. Amen.